This podcast is for anyone who's interested in the internal psychological world from a black and Asian perspective. Barton Network is where UK black and Asian therapists share their passion and their expertise. My name is Eugene Ellis. I'm a psychotherapist and founder of Barton. These podcasts are a continuing conversation around the psychological life of black and Asian people in the UK. Over the next few months, I'll be presenting UK black and Asian therapists sharing their thinking and psychological concepts so as to support all therapists and mental health workers in their work with their black and Asian clients. This is the third of eight podcasts where I'll present recordings of therapists who have given talks at Barton conferences over the years. The last podcast presented psychotherapist Elaine Arnold, who spoke about some of the policies that mitigated against Caribbean people when they immigrated to the UK in her talk that she gave at the 2011 Barton Conference. The speaker for this podcast is Farkri Davids. He spoke at the 2012 Barton Conference. Farkri Davids is a psychoanalyst working in London who has had a long-standing interest in the psychology of racism. He lived in South Africa under apartheid, where he was a lecturer in psychology at the University of Cape Town. His work in England has made him honorary senior clinical psychologist at the Tavistock Clinic in London, honorary consultant psychologist at the London Clinic of Psychoanalysis, and fellow of the Institute of Psychoanalysis. He has written and taught widely on the psychology of racism and has recently published a book called Internal Racism, A Psychoanalytical Approach to Race and Difference, which looks at how we can understand what happens in the mind of those engaged in or experiencing racism. In his talk, Farkri starts off by honouring the important work of Franz Fanon, who amassed a vast body of work in the 40s and 50s as a psychiatrist in France, that today establishes his position as a leading theoretician of black consciousness. Farkri lays out very engagingly and thoughtfully how internal racism works and gives it to us in a nutshell. You're going to want to listen to this several times because it puts it all together and, for me, clearly articulates this issue which, when put into words, gives me a sense of empowerment. This is Farkri Davids. Thank you very much, Eugene. Um, This is my first time here, and I want to begin by saying what a great pleasure it is to be here. It is for me a kind of uh, answer to a prayer from the time I first set foot in a university and found myself to be one of two dark-skinned faces in a class of 500. And that's the way it was. And I've always dreamed one day of standing among people who look like me and have the same color as me. And this is the very, very first occasion that it's been possible to achieve that. And I want to thank you very much for that. I feel a bit like uh, Archbishop Tutu, but the other way around. I feel I've come home to, to where I belong, if you know what I, what I mean. Now. I am uh, South African, as you may know, and that means that the encounter with apartheid was very much what I grew up with, 
we, we grew up in the worst time when they were implementing it, really in the most ruthful, um, ruthless and terrible way. So my experience was very much um, as Sanjay spoke about it. You know, I found myself studying psychology and wondering not only where are black people, where are we in this, but how can one teach psychology in a university, in an apartheid society, without making any mention whatsoever of the, the context in which we live. And it's been a deep source of puzzlement, fury, rage, you know, the usual stuff that all of you know. And I think my interest in trying to understand the psychology of racism, of course, comes from there. You know, when one experiences, as all of you will have, um, the impact of being on the wrong side of racism, you do ask yourself what sorts of things must be going on in people's heads to make this sort of thing, you know, to make them apparently not notice how crazy it is to carry on like this. You know, the dehumanization that you spoke of, that's sort of right at the core of it, at the beginning of it. So that's, that's where I've sort of come from, and I've tried to sustain that interest all through my life, even though in psychology and in psychoanalysis you find disciplines that are apparently not interested in that problem. In psychoanalysis, they reduce it to something else. You say that you're experiencing racism, and they'll tell you you're experiencing the Oedipus complex through your racism. <laughs> now, you know, I, I, you know, I sort of understand the, the logic of this, but you know, the, the sheer madness and perversity of carrying on like that has seemed to me completely daft, and I've just decided what I have to do is to try and find others who think it's a problem and try and make a communion and build some understanding, which is what I've been on about, really, for most of my life. Now, the, the, the first person I found who spoke about this is Franz Fanon, whom you mentioned earlier. And if you haven't read Franz Fanon, you really have to, because it is just another, you know, for me, in apartheid South Africa, Fanon was banned, of course. But somebody smuggled in his two books at the time. And reading Black Skin, White Masks was just, it blew your mind away. You know, the way Fanon is able to articulate an inner experience that one almost doesn't yet know is what you're feeling is just, you know, miles ahead of anybody else. That, that writes about these things. And still today, I feel that. There's a, a sort of emotion in his writing that gets very close to the bone. And it's painful, and it hurts you to read. And you admire the integrity of a black person who is somehow able to feel what living in this divided world does to one and to begin to talk about it. You know, And it is just extraordinary. Now, you'll know that Franz Fanon talks about the black problem. And he defines it very, very clearly. Firstly, when you read him, you realize he doesn't want to recognize the black problem. Because what the black problem is, in a nutshell, is that he says that for all of us who, who grow up, now that was the colonial world then, but I think it's relevant today as well, because the power, which is what he's talking about there, power is white. And if you happen to be black, you're on the wrong side of the power divide. Now, the black problem is this. 
Fanon says that you internalize that divide into yourself. And as everybody wants to do, it's natural human, you want to identify with whoever is powerful. And remember, whoever is powerful is construed in the world as being good and desirable. So Fanon says, whether we like it or not, we will find ourselves identifying with white power inside of ourselves. And that, that for us black people is a huge tragedy because you cannot identify with white without disidentifying with black, disavowing the black within you. Now, if you can see how mind-boggling that, con that conceptualization is, because immediately it makes an external problem an internal problem that lives in all of us. And Fanon would say, and he does it so beautifully in his book, I wish I had longer than I could give you the quotes. He says, painful as it is for me to, to admit, deep inside my psyche, there is a wish to be white. He <coughs> talks about that. Now, Franz Fanon was hap happened to be married to a, he was, he was from the Caribbean, French-speaking, moved to France, studied, I think, medicine there, married to a white French woman. He writes in his book, and when I caress those white breasts, I take hold of white civilization and I make it mine. Imagine, imagine where this man has gone inside of him. But that was the one bit of inspiration, if you look at psychology, and, psych and Franz Fanon was a psychiatrist. So he did write that book as a psychological book. But then, as you probably know, he got fed up of psychiatry and joined the Algerian Revolution. <laughs> a Caribbean man goes to an Arab-speaking country where he, the Frenchman, is head of psychiatry in the country, recognizes what they're up to, joins, doesn't matter that they're not black, they're Arabs, but they are the blacks in relation to white power, and gave up his psychiatry and became a politician. Now for us psychologists, that's a great tragedy, because black skin, white masks is the beginning of a psychological pro uh, project, it's not the end of it. And it marks out a beautiful, the reason he left psychology, I think, is exactly the reason I think that if anybody wants to say to me my problem with race is Oedipal, I feel like slapping them through the face, <laughs> is exactly that reason. That psychology to him reduced human experience into an inner, ex, in, inner sort of essence, supposedly, which was reified. Then it explains everything. Whereas he thought this is complete bullshit. You know, the, the, your problem with white power was to do with the white colonizer coming into a situation and changing your reality so that he's got the order right, that the psyche and its problem is secondary to external reality. And he found nobody else at that time who think, thought in that way. Psychoanalysts were not as developed as they are today. They were still trying to work out what, what a psychoanalytic discipline looked like. So they're trying very much to reify the individual. Anyhow, so Fanon was the only, 
sort of role model that I found I could make a, a, a connection with. And I use him very much as a compass to guide where we want to go, because there are two things about that. One is to recognize that this is a consequence of the world in which we find ourselves. It comes that way around. It's not that we create the world in a racist way. A racist structure exists in society. It's the first tenet that Fanon propounds. And then he is very careful. If you think about that breasts of white civilization and all that, he's very careful to try and get the problem into the mind and to say that for us blacks, it, it's true for all human beings, but we are, I can talk to you the way I can't anywhere else. So for us blacks, we have, to, we have to grapple with that internal issue. And how do we do it? What, to, what, what tools can we find to help us grapple with that? Now, I, I want to give, begin by giving you an example, because... Eileen talked very much, or rather this, this conference today, isn't it? This is about the silent impact of racism. Absolutely on the money, that. I, I have here, in the beginning of my book, a lovely newspaper article that comes from Sanjeev Bhaskar. You, you all know him, don't you? Goodness gracious me, broadcast, that, that guy. <clears throat> this is the article, and I read it to you, and I'm very sorry, I didn't realize I could have stuck it on a, on a slide, but you'll have to listen to me and, and take it in. This is from a newspaper article on Baskar. Baskar got his first taste of a traditional British curry house and of the British attitude sometimes on the menu alongside the chicken tikka masala when he was a business studies student at Hatfield Poly. He'd gone out with a group of mates to an Indian restaurant. The menus had been passed round, the lagers and poppadums ordered, and then attention turned to the one non-white person in the room who wasn't a waiter. Bhaskar says, it's one of the most uncomfortable experiences I've had in a restaurant. Somebody said to me, well, you'll obviously order the hottest thing on the menu. And I felt tricked into ordering it. Obviously, in my mind, it was me in an Indian restaurant. But to everybody else, I was an Indian in an Indian restaurant. And at that point, I suddenly became aware of who I was, i.e. in this world, and how unpleasant it all was. Now, I, th I love that quote, because I think there one gets a glimpse of how hidden racism works. Because these guys were his friends, right? They're not racist. They're not people who would not be friends with an Indian. And not only that, feel sufficiently comfortable to let their guard down and say what... You now, mostly people are full of political correctness and all the bullshit like that. And you can't get to the, you can't get to the truth. So this guy always feels sufficiently comfortable, lets his guard down, and out it comes. But if you look at it, look at the way Sanjeev describes it. You know, just freeze frame it. Somebody says an innocent thing. You're going to order the hottest thing on the menu. And Bhaskar says, I felt tricked into ordering it. Now, if you look at that, what happened between them? It's as if his mind had been paralyzed, but the way you, you were talking about uh, Farad's 
you were talking about Farad's book on mental paralysis. His mind had been paralyzed. What the other thought had somehow entered into his head and came out through his mouth with his words that he wanted uh, the hottest thing on the menu. Now there you get, in a nutshell, how in a hidden way racism works. Now if, if you just forget about that, if you imagine any old ordinary patient would come to you and say, I sat around in a restaurant and somebody said something and then my mouth said the same thing, you'd think this is a serious psychiatric issue. This is thought insertion from one person into another. Yeah? So we're talking about a way in which, in racist mechanisms, something very mad is mobilized and goes on. It's not ordinary, oh, he thought that, oh, fuck him, I don't want to do that, I want this. It's not at that level. It is very, very quick. Uh, but what, if, you, if you slow it down, it's as if his mind had been opened up and somebody had been able to project something forcibly into his mind, closed his mind off again, and let that do its dirty work so that it, mo it mobilized his speech, used his words, and out came his voice saying, I'd like the hottest curry on the menu. Do you, do you follow? So if you, if you look at it, we are talking about something from a psychological point of view that is not ordinary kind of mechanisms. They are very severe and serious mechanisms that are of an interpersonal nature, where one person does things to the other. Now cast yourself back to that scene that Basca describes. Now if you imagine saying to the chap who said that, do you know what, imagine I would talk to this bloke and say to him, you know what you've just done, pal? You know, you know what this, you've done to this poor Indian? You've, uh, you know, imagine that. They'd say to me, I'm completely nuts, wouldn't they? If I say it to you, you know what I'm talking about, right? So there's something about where you are positioned in this divide that allows you either to empathize with it, to know from your experience what it is like, and what do you notice? That if you're on the other side of the divide, you think, you pointed it out, you think, these bloody blacks have a chip on your, their shoulder, you know. You can't even have a joke with an Indian without him saying that you've invaded his head and made him... <laughs> you're, you're familiar with that. So this, 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 this creates, it's part of the landscape on which hidden racism exists. <laughs> that on the one hand, we're talking about psychotic-type phenomena, serious projection into people that have a consequence. Not just, I thought you might like a uh, hot meal or, uh, you know, a, a hot curry or something. Not that sort of stuff. That's normal. But a serious projection in the most hidden of ways, which lodges in there and has an effect on that person. So to my mind, there we get observations that belong to what the psychology of racism involves. The psychology of it, not the sociology of it, that we know quite a lot about. Now if we ask ourselves, um, you know, what is remarkable about that? Because we imagine that in our world this happens all the time, doesn't it? I mean, you get a look, you get a, 
you know, and mostly, if you ever try to, to prove that this is what's happened, you're, a, you're hiding to nothing. Forget it, mate. You know, and if you go and talk to blacks, they know exactly what you're talking about. You know, you go and talk to whites. If they PC, they feel so sorry for you, but you can, <laughs> and so on. If they non-PC, they'll tell you, listen, mate, you've got to stop being so paranoid. They, they, they used to say to me, you know, you're no longer in apartheid South Africa, pal. <laughs> And I, and I would say, well, it's because I lived in apartheid South Africa that I can recognize when the signs are not up, I can recognize the world that I'm inhabiting. So we'd have endless arguments. These are whites that I'm close to. We could have arguments. But one knew they didn't feel it. Now, what is curious to me about that? Because the quote goes on. It's an interview with Sanjeev Bhaskar. And he says it's the first time that he realized how he was seen in this country. Now that puzzled me because I thought if a man had to live to 20 to realize how you are seen in this country and that you are not seen, and by seen now you realize I mean at a deeper level, you are not seen as an Indian or as an immigrant or as a foreigner or as a bloody black or whatever it is, I wonder what planet you've been living on. You know, where have you been, mate? Now, that, you see, I'm not following the white man's story. That's interesting in its own right. I'm interested for us in Sanjeev Bhaskar's story. How come he had his eyes shut and walked around with a dark skin on him, believing that he was an Englishman? That's my, my question about that. So if you dig around and you try and explore this, I came one day to an, uh, tell you an interesting story. When my boy was three and a half years old, he came home one night, and his mum was giving him a bath, and he says to her, you know, can she please make sure she washes his skin properly tonight? You know, and the shackles went up, so she sort of talked to him a bit about it. And it turns out he thinks his skin is gray, yeah, and, uh, you know, it's dirty, and it has to be cleaned. And please, can she get whatever it is one does to clean the skin? Now, of course, people like us are sensitive about these things. You know, so my wife went nearly mad, and so did I, and we were about to take the school to court for planting <laughs> weird ideas into his mind because they were a mixed school, and we pride ourselves in living in a multicultural world. You know? And what gives us gave us great pleasure is even as a small child, when he drew himself, he'd get a brown crayon out and draw himself brown. And then we realized, for a week or two, he hadn't been drawing himself brown anymore. So that this business of not having a brown skin anymore was genuine. If you looked at his drawings, the brown skin had gone. Anyway, eventually, as it does, one calms down, you have a good night's sleep, you gather yourself together. And eventually, we were able to begin to think. Now, one of the things that my son said to his my wife is that, because um, you, know, you know the conversations. I know you know these conversations. You say, your skin is brown, and it's beautiful. What's your problem with that? Well, it is dirty, mom. You know? What do you mean it's dirty? You know, Rory's skin's just as, his white skin is just as clean or dirty as your skin. Yeah, 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 yeah. Eventually, it turns out that his teacher 
um, who was, was one of those very pale sort of platinum blondes, you know, very, very devoid of color sort of white people. His teacher, he thought, was not dirty. And how, how did that come about? Because my wife, when they had this conversation, says to him, but, you know, even call her Angie, you know, she also gets dirty. Everybody gets, but when she, he mentioned that, he wouldn't have it. No, she's not dirty. You know, she's not dirty. I know she's a very, very nice person, which she is, was, and so on. So that sort of gave one a clue as to something that must be going on in his head, doesn't it? And we sort of, I mean, it took a while to calm down, as you, I'm sure you can know. Eventually, we realized <clears throat> that these kids were about to be moved from the class of this teacher where he'd been for ever since he went to nursery into the next class. And the way the school did it, a nice school, the way they did it is they sort of encouraged them. They told them they big, they're, big, they're going to the big class now. And that's i.e. it's really a very desirable move to make. But what we came to realize from talking to the school is they had no sensitivity to the fact that children find separation traumatic. It wasn't something that was discussed. It wasn't something talked about up to that point. And then you could see what had happened in his head. What had done is, what had happened is he sensed inside of him emotions connected with being separated from his teacher, whom he really did like. And she was li likable. She was a very nice person. And you know, at that stage, there's also the separation from the mother that comes before. You know, these days you have to send your kids to nursery very early. So there's a, a separation is a complex and difficult thing. And then we came to realize that he, he had separated off all the emotional baggage that belonged to separation trauma, call it that. Yeah? And instead of having it in his mind, he had projected it onto his skin. So this psychic dirt now was concretely lodged on the skin. And that made sense of why he asked that the skin should be cleansed. Do you, do you follow that? So you can see that in racism, you define firstly psychic stuff that you don't want. You separate it off from the rest of your mind, and then you project it somewhere like this, yeah, onto the skin. Now, if you were a white kid in that class, what would you do? You'd do the same, but instead of projecting it onto your white skin, where do you put it? You project it onto the black kid. Yeah? So they use the same mechanism. The white kid uses his sense and makes what you could think of as an efficient projection. If there's something you don't like, hurl it out of the window. Don't put it over there. Yeah? That's what the white kid can do, can use the way in which blackness is construed in our world, darkness is construed in our world as part of the, the, the less privileged, the unempowered, the bad, all this sort of stuff, and use that as a basis to dump the stuff into my boy. Yeah? But the black kid, this is Fanon's point, can't do that. Because he acts as if he is just like the white kid. Do you follow? and dumps it onto his black skin, because that black skin is construed in the same way for both. They grow up in the same world. 
Do you follow? So that creates then the black problem that Fanon talks about. It's an internal projection into the skin. Now, of course, we were able to reverse that because we could say, we, you know, once you realize that's what's going on, you know, it's actually a nice experiment. You, know, you, you go off to the school, you, you don't mention any of this, you keep it private. Why involve them in it? It's my son's internal mechanism, after all. But you know what's fueling it. So we said to them, listen, chaps, you know, little kids feel things about being separated. Can you kindly talk to them about this? Yes, of course. Which, how thoughtless of us. And they did their bit and talked about how painful it is, blah, 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 blah. In other words, they took the psychic dirt and metabolized it for them. And hey, presto, two, three weeks later, brown skin began to reappear in drawings. So that it's a very nice story, you see, um, where you can see that the hypothesis that there is something psychically that fuels this projection must be correct, because it got reversed when you attended to the underlying issue. And my son became, he made peace with his brown skin, and we never heard any more about this thing. You, I was going to talk to you about theory, but I've, I'm not going to, because it's enough, because you can, you can see the main elements of a theory of how racism in the mind works depends on splitting, but you don't split in a new way. You use an existing division in your world. So I tend to think of it, I talk about it as the racial other because I can't think of another word for it, but it is really you choose somebody who is the other of social stereotyping so that it's consistent with that aspect of reality in the world out there. And then, once you've projected into that person, you don't anymore have to own your projection. Yeah? And if you think black people smell, all you have to do is to find one black pe person who that morning didn't have a shower. And hey presto, reality tells you that black people smell. Yeah? And then you just don't notice the 99 others you've met today who actually are perfectly not smelly. Do you follow? And you can, uh, you can then justify your projection, never have to take responsibility for it, and always feel that you are only seeing external reality. Now that's the beauty of using external stereotypes, and you see what I'm trying to argue, that you give it a new lease of life yourself in your own head. Yeah? That's, that's the theory of internal racism in a nutshell. But I thought I should say something more about that story I told you about my son. Because my wife and I, of course, were delighted that this problem was sorted out because he could live, it seemed to us, like an ordinary human being in a multicultural kind of world the way we'd like to. And then... A lot later, I thought to myself, you know, I am really daft, because I couldn't work out why Sanjeev Bhaskar had to wait until he was in his 20s to realize that he was not an Englishman. I really couldn't understand that. And then I thought there must be something about the fact that in that incident I told you about, 
What my son learned is that you could make use of a racist mechanism yeah, in order to rid yourself, when push comes to shove, to rid yourself of something that you didn't want. And that the symptom of that is that the racist, racism, as it were, would become more pronounced. And I thought that that must be part of what happens to all of us. Now, there's long, lots of evidence that I could bring you, but we don't have time to, for all of that today. That that must happen to all of us at some point early on, that we learn that you can do this. And I think that we store that away in secret in our minds so that it becomes an in, a bit of internal racism, as it were, that is hidden from conscious awareness and which produces guilt. Because you cannot do what that child did and project into his dark skin without doing terrible violence to the mother who bore him and loved him, the mother who raised him, the father who works for him, the grandparents who sacrificed this, that, and the other. And if you add the legacy of slavery and you know, the partition in India, Pakistan, all sorts of terrible trauma, which is part of their blackness, one might say. You cannot turn your back on that without denigrating them. So you do in your mind something terrible to the objects who love you and raise you. Now, that creates guilt. And if that guilt is unbearable, then what can you do? How do you deal with it? You fortify your racist mechanisms and you then drive it underground so that it doesn't exist. And it made me think about my son because, you know, years, few years later, you know, my mother-in-law uh, used to go and collect him. Now she wears, my wife is Pakistani, she wears shawakamis. She hardly speaks any English. Um, and, you know, but she'd manage, she'd get a cab and go and collect him and so on. And I thought one day, I detected he was with his friends, and they were talking about his grandma. And I thought he'd, I detected just a little bit of feeling ashamed of his grandma, you know, that she couldn't speak English and so on. And I thought, aha, there we see a new version of this denigration of the Indian self, call it. Yeah? Very much hidden from view, because now it's not a problem to anybody, you know. And then he fell in love with that one time. He didn't want to eat, uh, you know, Pakistani food. He wanted pasta and pizzas all the time. <laughs> and I thought, bloody hell, now that's interesting. What is going on in that head? And I thought, now there you can see a bit of what I think the Sanjeev Bhaskar in the 20 years that he supposedly thought he was just in India. Now, of course, these are speculations. You see what I'm saying? Because we don't have people in treatment where we can observe and we can make the inquiry. But I thought that must be how internal racism gets a new lease of life. Now, of course, my son's a brown-skinned boy, and so on. Nobody would think he's racist, would they? So what, how does he manage? I thought if he had any sense, he would project it into his white friends who didn't like, <laughs> who, who didn't like you know, this non-English-speaking grandma that he had. And do you, so do you see the problem? Then it becomes very slippery, because where is it? The racism itself is no longer 
in his mind. It's been projected into an object. Now, if somebody tried to cure him of this racism, you can imagine the problem that they, they would have, because it's not there. It's in somebody else. So you see, I'm opening up a whole can of worms for us blacks to think. But you can see my thinking is that this is the legacy that living in a post-colonial world leaves us with. We can't ignore it, I don't think, because we have to deal with that world. We can't expect any help from the majority white world because they don't think the problem exists. So we've got quite a business that we have to try and get on. And I'm hoping that you know, if you conceptualize it like that, one can maybe take a step forward and at least have some tools with which to think about it. Thank you very much. That was Farkari Davids giving a talk on how internal racism works at the 2012 Barton Conference. To find out more about Barton, please visit us at our website, www.baatn.org.uk. It would be good to hear from you about these podcasts and to get your views and feedback. You can email me at eugene at baatn.org.uk or you can leave your thoughts on the Barton podcast page. I hope you can join me for the next podcast when I will be presenting a recorded talk from psychotherapist and author Aileen Allen, who talks about her work of transcending intergenerational trauma. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.